It's good to be with you on, uh, how, many, how many days are we off from Christmas? Like four or five? Christmas week. It's good to be with you in Christmas week. Um, let, me, let me pray real quick, ask God to be with us again, and uh, then we'll dive into the word. Heavenly Father, the, the greatest reality in the universe is your glory seen and enjoyed and savored in your son, Christ Jesus. There's nothing even close to that. And what we're celebrating this Christmas as we gather together, as we spend time with family, as we, as we uh, celebrate in our hearts and in our words and in good food and in time with others we love, Father, help us not to forget that, that you and your Son, the glory of your reality shining through Jesus is why we have this holiday. There's no other reason for it in the world, so help us feel in our hearts an affection, a joy, a gladness that is fixed on Jesus, on who he is, and on what he came to do. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and uh, turn with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 2, Isaiah 9, 2. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, it's not surprising that we're in this text. We're in the middle of our Advent series. And so by now, you probably know this passage very well. Um, during this series, we, we've really been focusing on this prophecy of hope in Isaiah 9 that was spoken to the people of Israel, if you remember, in the middle of their being sent into captivity and exile by the by the kingdom of Assyria at the time. And this prophecy is a promise by God to shine light into the darkness of their captivity, into the darkness of their exile. And that promise is still speaking to God's people today. In 2020, where for many of us, it has felt like a season of captivity. It's felt like a season of exile. Um, which is why so few of us are meeting. It's why we're not in John Muir. It's why we're worshiping on Saturday instead of a Sunday. Um, we lost all of those things over the course of 2020. Things that I didn't, and you may not have thought, would ever go away, at least not that way. And what God is doing here at the end of this year is he, in his grace and his love, is speaking Isaiah into risen hope. He's speaking it into our hearts. And he's telling us this promise all over again. And so let's read it again today, starting with verse 2, Isaiah 9. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so that's the promise God spoke. 2,700 years, or 27, not 2,700 years, 20, yeah, 2,700 years ago. <laughs> um, and he spoke it to them while they're being spent or sent into exile. And this is the same promise that God is speaking to us today, to you and to me, in the middle of whatever situation you're walking through, in, in the middle of whatever week you have had, this is what God is saying to us. And so just looking back into what we've covered so far, in the first week we looked at this text, we looked at the very end of the promise where Isaiah says, this undergirding reality of the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to accomplish this. Everything in this passage that we read about will happen because of the zeal and the passion God has for his glory and for his name. He will not break this promise. That's awesome. <laughs> the last week, the second week in this series, we looked at the darkness in this passage, in verse two specifically, and we went all the way back to, to chapter eight of Isaiah, and we saw that it was rooted in fear of this world, fear in this world, and not of fear in God, the holy fear we should have in God. It's a spiritual state of the human heart that can only be broken by the light that we see in Isaiah 9-2. One of the things we said about this light both weeks is that this light is the child to be born. This light is the sun to be given. That's the light, the sun, in verse 3. And he is, as John 1 tells us, shining into the darkness. So today, as we approach Christmas this week, I want us to ask a very simple question. I had a conversation with Kaylee earlier about asking questions of the Bible. This is the main question we're going to be asking today. And it's this, who is the son of Isaiah 9-6? Who is he? Or, or as the Christmas song asks, what child is this? Who is this? Who is this son in this passage? How does Isaiah depict this son to be given? I want, I want us to come as a church, come to this son, and I want to look into his face. I know we just have words on a page, but I want to look into his face as we approach Christmas and ask, who is he? Stare at who he is, the reality of his glory, and ask, when Isaiah says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, who is this son? Who is this child? <clears throat> and there's three different pictures, three specific pictures that I believe Isaiah paints in this text. And I want to explore them today, starting with the clearest, probably, and just saturate our minds with these pictures. As we head to Christmas, I want the eyes of our hearts to see the reality underneath the words in this text and to look at this promised son who 
is received by all or who is given to all who will receive him. God has promised him to his people. And so I want to take a look. The first and probably the clearest picture we get in this passage of this son is that he is a king. He's a king. In fact, he is the king. Verse six clearly tells us that the government will rest upon his shoulder. In, in other words, the government belongs to him. He upholds it. It's his government, all of it. Verse seven underscores this by saying the increase of his government has no end, which means there's no part of the world, there's no part of the universe that he is not Lord of and king over. He is over all of it. And we know we can use the word king to describe him because verse seven says he sits on the throne of David. He rules over David's kingdom forever. So this son is a king like David was. And uh, the Israelites would have heard this prophecy from Isaiah and they would have known when Isaiah used the word David who it was that he was talking about. Because this throne, the throne of David, belonged only to the son of David. So listen to 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. God, God tells David here this. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build for, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the same language we see in Isaiah 9. God says here that he is going to establish the throne of David's kingdom, the, 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 the throne that David's offspring will sit on forever. And this is the son in Isaiah 9. This is the one who sits on David's throne. He is the king. And Isaiah in this chapter wants us to see this king very clearly. He could have just given us a description of his kingdom. He does that in verse seven. And just leave the king to our imagination, but he refuses to do that. He tells us what this king will be called by his people. And so as we look at this one picture of him being a king, before we get to the second two, I want to look at these names he gives the king. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. He is telling us what this king is going to look like. And like I said, before we get to the other two pictures of him, I want to just briefly press into each of these because they're so critical. God didn't need to include these names. He didn't need to, but he wants us to know the kind of king he is giving us in his son. And think about this, all these names are relational. They're not meant to simply sit out here and for us to think about them as abstract concepts. God is showing us why this promised son, this promised king is so glorious. So let's think about these carefully. The first is this, wonderful counselor. This king is a wonderful counselor, which tells us he is not far from his people. He is not far from us. He is here with us, counseling us, speaking into our lives. That the name wonderful counselor shows him, it's almost this picture of him stooping into our lives and speaking wisdom into our messiness. And Isaiah 28, 29 tells us clearly that this king who embodies God is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. That's who he is. 
and he's ours. This is incredibly good news that our, that our king can lean into the helpless circumstances we find ourselves in every week, every day, and meet us where we need him most and speak life and truth into our lives. He speaks hope in the middle of hopeless situations and it makes him the wonderful counselor. Let me just be honest with you. No one you know in your life will counsel you like he will. No one, not a single person will counsel you like he will. He will never lie to you and he will always lead you into the path that is best. That doesn't mean it will be easy. That just means it'll be right. It'll always be right. But he's more than a wonderful counselor. He's also the mighty God, which tells us that this king isn't just speaking into our lives. This king is fighting our battles. That's why you put the word mighty in there. This king in all that he does from the establishment of his kingdom and all the glorious things that are ushered in through that kingdom down to the intricate details of our lives that feel broken beyond our comprehension. He is fighting for us as the mighty God. And he's not going to lose that fight. He will not lose that fight. The king in this passage, to say that he is the mighty God is to say he's unstoppable. There is nothing that will ever be able to reverse or to annul or to turn back the good he intends for his people. If he was just a man and he wasn't the mighty God, he could not make this promise. And we would have no, we would have no right to expect him to be able to hold it. But he's not a weak, frail man. Our king is the mighty God. And like I said earlier, this is not intended to be an abstract concept. This is not intended to be some nebulous idea that we can have a theological discussion about. God wants us to feel what this means in our lives. Our king cannot be stopped. There's nothing in the universe that can stop his work in our lives to bring about his glory and our good. And therefore, we need to hear that word, mighty God, and understand that our king fights for us. But he's not just the mighty God or the wonderful counselor. He's also the everlasting father. And this isn't a reference to God the father. This is a reference to the role the son plays in our lives as king, as uh, all that he does in our lives. So John 14, for example, the son is looking at his disciples. He's looking at his people and he says to them before he dies on the cross, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. And then he says, I will never leave you as orphans. I will never leave you. I'm not going to leave you. And so I mean, remember that last week when we were going through Isaiah eight and, and, we, and we have this, this, uh, statement that Isaiah makes in uh, verse 18, where he says, behold, I and the children the Lord has given me. That passage, when Hebrews 2, 13 interprets it for the Christian says, that was actually talking about the son. That's a reference to the son. Isaiah said it about his own disciples, but that was actually Jesus who was saying it, the spirit of Jesus through him 700 years before Jesus was even born. These children who are being mentioned in that passage 
are those who the son has redeemed for himself and he loves them and cares for them like they're his own children. He is the everlasting father. Isaiah 8 is talking about us. <laughs> We're the children that God has given his son and the son, this king, will be for us the very presence of the father for all eternity. In other words, he will love us and he will care for us with an unfailing, everlasting fatherly love that literally will never end. That's not normal for fathers in this world. I'm a father. I have two kids. I see one right there. Hopefully the other one's in the overflow room. Uh, <laughs> um, and I love my kids. I love my kids. I would, I would die for my kids. Easy. Don't even need to think about it. But that is nothing compared to this love. Nothing compared to this love. This everlasting, never failing fatherly love completely committed to loving me as a child in his arms. And he'll do that for all eternity. That, I mean, that's what everlasting means. It will never end. He will never stop loving you. I just want you to reflect on this risen hope. If we could just glimpse at what this love is, we would never be the same. We would never be the same. And this brings us to the final name of those four. This king is called the Prince of Peace. The word prince here is Sar in Hebrew, and it means chieftain, ruler, captain. He's the one who's in control. And this prophecy says that we're going to call him the Prince of Peace. Verse 7 tells us in Isaiah 9 that his reign and his, his power will be characterized by ushering in peace in this world. And that word peace in Hebrew, some of you may know it, is shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean that it's going to be calm. It's going to be serene. It means that. It means it's going to be peaceful. Shalom means fullness and completion. That everything's been brought into perfection. We will lack no good thing when he's finished doing what he's going to do. It will be full, it will be complete, it will be perfect in every way. And in verse 7 it says, I mean just to underscore it, of peace there will be no end. No end. In a world filled with expiration dates, this verse is precious. That's the kingdom the Son is bringing into the world. And here's what we need to know about this. This is not just a peace in the future. And this is not just a peace that is outside of us in this world. This isn't even just some theoretical peace that could happen. This is a real peace that penetrates the core of our being where all the fear we feel resides. Where all the turmoil, the worry, the anxiety, it penetrates us. And the reason I can say that is because when the New Testament talks about this peace, they, it refers to this peace as the peace of God, which, get this, surpasses all understanding. All understanding. That's the kind of peace this king is offering us. This is not normal peace, the way the world uses that word. This is not an artificial kind of peace where we try to drum up in ourselves courage or strength. This is a divine peace because our king 
has conquered every foe, period. And so the first picture of this son in Isaiah 9 is the picture of a king, the king, who is the wonderful counselor, who is the mighty God, who is the everlasting father, and who is the prince of peace. That's the first picture in this text. He is the king. But the second picture of this son in Isaiah 9 shows us how he became the king. It is a picture of the son being our deliverer. He is our deliverer. He's not just a king over us, but he has delivered us from oppression. And we can see this in verse four. Isaiah 9, 4 says, for the yoke of his burden. So that his, in that text, is us. It's you. The yoke of your burden, the burden of God's people. And the staff for his shoulder. That's our shoulder being pushed down by the staff and the rod of his oppressor. That's our back being hit by this rod. You, the son, the king, the deliverer, have broken as on the day of Midian. This king, he is our deliverer, which means that this child that was going to be born, this son to be given, has taken up the yoke of our burden in his hands, the staff that presses against our shoulder and the rod that we've been oppressed by, and he breaks it. Says, as on the day of Midian, when, if you recall, the weak man Gideon and a handful of soldiers, relatively speaking, defeated the armies of the Midians. And you remember this story in, in the book of Judges where God really takes the weakest man possible and uses him in this small group of men to defeat countless hordes of Midianites. And the reason God did that was to show very clearly that man was not their deliverer. This wasn't accomplished by men. It was God who did this. He fought the battle for them. He was the one who, who brought them victory. He was the one who, who, uh, who fought for them and won for them decisively. And this was to show that their trust and confidence, the trust and confidence of the people of Israel and all of God's people across the running ages can't be in man. It must be in God. And this is the same way Isaiah 9 tells us that the son delivers his people. He does it in a way that shows very clearly that this deliverance, the breaking of the rod of the oppressor, happens by the hand of God alone. So here's the question. What is this deliverance that he's talking about here? What, what is the breaking of the rod of the oppressor in verse 4? Well, we know here that in part God is promising the people of Israel. He's looking into their captivity and their exile. And he's promising them deliverance from the oppression of exile, from captivity in the hands of Assyria. But is that all that the prophet has in view? Is that all that he's thinking about or is there a greater oppressor? And we know the answer of course to that is yes, there is a greater oppressor. The greatest oppressor that all of us have, every single one of us, is our own sin. It's our own desire and inclination to dishonor the living God. It's the, the very reason that Israel was in exile to begin with. It's the very reason the people of, of Israel were being afflicted by the Midianites back when Gideon um, was used by God to rescue them. Sin is the greatest oppressor we have, period, in this world. 
because it is the only thing that can truly keep us out of the presence of God for all eternity. Nothing else has that power. Um, I mean, even Satan, when you think about Satan, for example, he is ultimately, at the end of the day, powerless against us apart from our own sin, which is why he's so committed to, to getting us to sin. So the question is, how does this deliverer, this king, the son, do, do this kind of work? Break the rod of the oppressor, the rod of, of sin and transgression, the rod of our desire to rebel against God. Well, Isaiah does not leave us in the dark. In Isaiah 53, which is usually a text we go into uh, in Easter, we see firsthand how this son will accomplish the deliverance of his people. And I want you to listen as I read a portion from that text. I'm not going to read it all. Um, but as I read a portion from that text, I want you to listen for the language of Isaiah 9. I'm reading the 53rd chapter, but you're going to see Isaiah, he's going to resurface stuff. He's going to repeatedly bring things to the surface when he talks about how this son, how this servant defeats the greatest oppressor that you and I have, our own sin. Listen to this, starting with verse four. Surely he, that's the son of Isaiah 9, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, listen to this, peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That, my friends, is what it looks like to break the rod of the oppressor. The only way the rod of the oppressor could ever be broken is if it was first broke across his back, the back of the sun. The reason the yoke can be removed from our shoulders is because he bore our iniquity. He bore that yoke. Isaiah is saying here he was, he was oppressed and afflicted. So the conquering king of Isaiah, Isaiah 9 had to be conquered in the punishment that we deserve due to us for our own sin. He had to be oppressed in order for us to be broken from oppression. So this is the way the son delivers us. He delivers us by being delivered into the hands of his enemies and being consumed by the very destruction that we deserve so that you and I can be free from the oppression of sin. This is a remarkable scene in Isaiah 53. I really wish I had more time to read it. The kingdom that, that this son who is given to us brings into this world doesn't begin by him conquering external enemies. That's not the way this starts. It begins with him conquering our sin on the cross. And I think Christmas is an awesome opportunity to reflect on this. The son has chosen not to first visibly reign in the world, though he does reign, not to first do that in a visible way, but to first visibly reign in our hearts, in the hearts of his people.
And that's exactly what he's doing in Isaiah 53. He's suffering on their behalf so that the kingdom he brings into the world can actually be theirs. If he doesn't do this for them, they have no part in this kingdom. No part at all. And so our deliverance at the hands of this king, when he comes, this king dies for us. And he brings, and this really brings us, brings into focus, I should say, the final picture we see in this text. So the first picture we saw was that he is the king. The second picture we saw in this text, Isaiah 9, is that he is the deliverer. The third picture we see here in Isaiah 9, in verse 6, this son is our treasure. He's the treasure. Why do we need deliverance from our sin? Why do we need a king who, who brings in lasting peace into a world that is in desperate need of it? Why do we need that? Here's the reason. So that we can enjoy the son as our treasure for all eternity. So that we can enjoy him as our treasure for all eternity. He's not just the means by which we get into this kingdom. He is the focal point of our joy while we're there. Look at verse three in Isaiah nine one more time. Verse three says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So think about this very carefully with me. Isaiah is prophesying about the future worship of this child to be born, this son to be given, our king, our deliverer, by his people after he's accomplished all that this passage promises. It's saying here that the son has multiplied the nation. One of the results of all that he's done in their lives, this breaking of the rod of the oppressor, is that he's multiplied the nation. Think about what that might mean. Everything we just saw in this son's sacrificial work in Isaiah 53, the deliverance that he does, how does that relate to him multiplying the nation? That deliverance wasn't, wasn't from something physical in this world. It was from sin and death. And so this isn't a biological multiplication that Isaiah mainly ultimately has in view. This is a supernatural multiplication. This is the children of God being brought into existence by the work of the son on the cross. That's how this nation is multiplied. By people who the son has redeemed for himself bringing them into existence as they place their eyes and their hearts on this king. And this, Isaiah says, is what ignites joy in God's people. This is why they rejoice. Isaiah says, you, the son, have increased its joy such that they rejoice before you as though they have the joy of bringing in the harvest as though they have gladness when they are finished with fighting and all they have left is to divide the spoil. That's the kind of joy he's describing here. But the joy isn't on those things. The joy is focused on the son. He is the focal point of the joy. He is the place where the joy of this people ultimately terminates. He's the treasure. He's the best part of the promise in Isaiah 9. 
it, it, it's not the best part of Isaiah 9. Think about this. Think about just how glorious he is. Isn't unending peace as good as that will be. It isn't, the best part of Isaiah 9 isn't perfect justice in the world as glorious as that will be. The best part of Isaiah 9 is the Son. Him. All of those things in, in his kingdom that he brings into this world are merely the means by which you and I can rejoice before him with this joy. All the goodness that this king, our deliverer, will give us in this age right now and in the age to come, all of that is designed to show us one main thing. The son is a treasure beyond comparison. There is nothing like him. We rejoice before him. He is what our joy is fixed upon. And this is precisely why when in the New Testament, we get to Luke 2, verse 8, the angels give this message to the shepherds upon the birth of this son into the world. Listen to this. In that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you, this is the joy, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the angel here tells us that that son, that child, that Lord will be good news of great joy. And that's not just because he's going to deliver us from our sin. It includes that, but it's not just that. This great joy isn't ultimately because we're being saved from our sin. It's so that we can be with him forever. The greatest benefit of his deliverance isn't forgiveness. As awesome as that is and as worthy of great joy that is, it isn't just forgiveness. It is the son himself. And we see here in Luke 2, the son who is born in the city of David is Christ Jesus, the Lord. That's who this son is. He's our king. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our deliverer. And for those who know him, for those who've tasted who he is, his glory, his worth, his beauty, he's our treasure. My main job at Risen Hope is really simple. The main job I have for the body of believers that call themselves Risen Hope is to get you to feel that. Is to get you to, to feel that Jesus really is this worthy and to feel it in the depths of your soul. The son of Isaiah 9 is not just how we get to heaven. For those who know him, for those who've encountered him, he is heaven. He is heaven to us. We have no good apart from him. He is our treasure. There is nothing we can experience in this universe more enjoyable than Jesus Christ. He is the greatest single gift in the world. And so the reason the son entered into human history 
isn't just that he would reign over the governments and the systems that are in this world, though he will one day visibly. He reigns right now, but he'll reign visibly over them. It isn't just that. Jesus came in this world to first reign in our hearts, to dominate our hearts, our affections, our desires. That's where he sets up his throne, in the hearts of his people. That's why he does all of Isaiah 53, so that we would see him as our treasure in, in, in regard him and adore him and worship him as having infinite worth and value and glory. And so in the next few moments as we participate in communion and as we sing more songs about him and even as we go through the rest of this week and reflect on all that he is in our approach to Christmas, I'm just asking you and inviting you Do everything in your soul's power to see him for who he is. Everything you can. It is easy for us when difficulties slam into our lives to fixate on the things that are broken. To struggle to see good in our circumstances. And 2020 has provided us a lot of reasons. But we cannot forget who he is and what he's done. This son is our king, he is our deliverer, and he has delivered us not only from the darkness of sin 2,000 years ago on the cross, but one day he will enter into this world and he will deliver us from the darkness of this present age. And both those acts of delivery, his, his work on the cross to redeem a people for himself and his work in the future to set up his kingdom so that everyone will see and no one will question his authority. Both of those works of deliverance in human history serve to show us, his people, how valuable he really is. We were made, I want you to hear me, we were made to know him. That's why you exist. That's why you live. That's why you breathe. Every millisecond of your existence is designed for that. And therefore, the greatest gift God could ever give us is his son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so this Christmas, I'm inviting you to make him your treasure. Make him your treasure. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy. Grant your people eyes to see. We need to see you. We desperately need the scales of unbelief and distraction and preoccupation and even recreation to be pulled from our eyes so that we can see you, Jesus. That we have no good apart from you. Help us to feel this. Help each of us, no matter our age, no matter how long we've been walking with you, just grant our hearts eyes 
Grant me eyes to see you this way. I just, I want this for our people. Shine the light of your glory into the darkness of our affections and bring us back to life. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.